Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. This week, if it is okay with you, I want to go a bit off the beaten track, definitely nothing medical, to discuss humor. Now, the Talmud has many humorous texts. We we know many witty lines that the great rabbis of previous generations have said. And although the Jewish people look to be quite a conservative, quite a, I wouldn't say stiff, but almost black and white people, we certainly have a good sense of humor. We know how to laugh. And I'm just wondering what the place of laughing of humor is in the context of Judaism. Should we try and be all serious? Should we try and, and have a laugh? We know that's a mitzvah to serve Hashem with happiness. Does that mean humor? Does that mean laughing? If you could speak about that for us, please. Yes, thank you. Nice to be back this week. And uh, approaching Purim, of course, is a time of hilarity and uh, pranks and so forth and so on. Often very humorous. Is that correct? And what does Judaism see as a place of humor? So I learned this subject from my teacher, Rav Moshe Shapiro, which gave a very interesting and unique insight. You won't find too many texts on this in Judaism. So it's worth paying attention and uh, understanding this subject. Indeed, what is the place of humor? Jokes. And indeed, why were human beings created with that ability? Why do we laugh? If you examine this subject from a secular perspective, you'll find it's a very perplexing subject. Great thinkers from Aristotle to the present have attempted to analyze the human faculty of laughter and humor and come up short. There's a classic work on this by Freud. Freud wrote a book called Der Witz, which means the joke, and its connection to the unconscious. It's full of jokes and analysis of the jokes, both wordplay, witty puns, practical jokes. And Freud tries to analyze what would be the psychiatric or psychological benefit of a sense of humor. After all, the evolutionist approaches the world by seeing everything that is part of our makeup as necessary for survival. Very challenging. Why do we need to laugh in order to survive? There's a famous French essay, one of the most famous ever written by Henri Bergson, happened to be Jewish as well, very, very well thought of, highly thought of French philosopher of the last century. It's called De Rire, which means laughter. Very, very interesting analysis of what makes us laugh. And again, no final definitive answer about what it means. And many other writers have analyzed the human sense of humor and attempted to explain what it is. There are many theories of laughter. Evolutionists, by the way, have a very great difficulty explaining how laughter could have and would have evolved. There's a, a theory known as the play theory. Laughter is a sort of a play games type of experience which may be necessary. There's one called the superiority theory. Now, when someone slips on a banana peel and falls on his back, I feel superior because it didn't happen to me. That causes humor. There's a theory called the catharsis or release theory. That means when, when something ridiculous happens, it releases that inarticulate burst of joy that we call laughter is a release of spiritual tension. There are many, many theories and none of them fully cover all the bases. So the question is, why do we laugh? It's also very instructive to note that laughter is uniquely human. Only humans laugh. Only humans laugh. Now, some people have said to me, well, hyenas laugh too. 
Rabbi Mena, let me assure you, they have no sense of humor. <laughs> you know, so the sense of humor, irony, and humor that causes us to laugh is uniquely human. And even more interesting, you can only laugh at something that's human. There's nothing a tree can do that can make you laugh. There's nothing a bicycle can do that can make you laugh. The only way you can laugh is there's a distortion of the human. If a bicycle looks like a person, that might be funny. Right. If you've got that sort of... Or an animal does something human-like. Indeed. Or a human does something animal-like. Mm. Or a very old person looks very young. Or a baby looks like a very... <laughs> a distortion of the human can make you laugh. But if it's totally lacking in any human, there's nothing a house can do or a tree can do, even the inanimate world that makes you laugh. It's only because there's some human perception or distortion, which is absolutely fascinating. What is so uniquely human? Deep in the heart of what it means to be human is the faculty of laughter. What does that mean? The Torah, of course, is full of laughter. Yoshev Bashamayim Yisrak, the one who sits in heaven, is laughing, which means God is laughing at human history. Really? What does that mean? Doesn't seem like a laughing matter to me. <laughs> and many verses talk about it. Then our mouth shall be full of laughter. From that verse, incidentally, the Talmud learns that it's forbidden to have a mouth full of laughter as we go through history. Too full of tragedy in order to allow us to laugh fully. Even at a wedding, we have a little reminder of sadness. We break a glass. We put some ash on the groom's head. In your home, you should have a little patch of wool that is not plastered. To have a mouth full of laughter, even though you should be rejoicing. And even in sad times, there should be an underlying sense of joy. Nevertheless, to have a mouth full of laughter is only appropriate in a messianic era. Az Then our mouth shall be full of laughter. We have other perplexing verses. For example, Vatishak Yom Acharon. A woman of greatness laughs at the day of death. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> we sing this every Friday night to our wives. The last day comes, she's laughing at that day. Who laughs at the day of death? What does that mean? So how do we approach a subject like this? Without going into too much detail, we have a principle in Jewish thinking that everything that manifests in the world, every phenomenon, every object, is projected from a higher world. The Ramchal teaches that as what he calls koichos nivdalim, kochot nivdalim, transcendental forces. Everything in this world is projected from a higher world, absolutely everything. And everything that God wants us to know about the higher world, he projects into our world. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence in an absolute sense. The most obvious example is that the body has a deeper transcendental force called the soul. When you look at the body, you become richly aware there's someone at home, someone inside. Anyone who relates to someone else as only a body is representing a very crude and sordid level of human relationships. But the body's good enough to show you that there's someone inside which takes you up into that level. But it's critical to understand that all the world is like that. When you look at a tree, you should be looking at the deeper force that is coming from the spiritual world in that tree. And therefore, whenever we want to know about anything in the world, we see it as the projection of something higher. And we're always making that parallel. Let me take a trivial example, homesickness. People get homesick. The Talmud says, People long for the place they come from. Why? The reason is because your soul is longing for the place it came from. Your soul knows that it comes from a spiritual world and it always feels the pull of that world. So it's projected into the trivial world of your emotions as longing for your home. Of course, if you speak to the evolutionists, they tell you the reason you long for home is because a few million years ago when you were a pigeon. <laughs> you know, but of course that's not correct. Take something deep, there's a thing called Dvekas. Dvekas means the obligation to bond with God with such an intensity that you lose all sense of who you are and build something far larger than yourself as an individual. Amazing idea. What does that look like in our world? It should be marriage. Marriage is two people giving themselves to each other so intensely and so fearlessly and so vulnerably 
that something larger than the sum of the parts is constructed. And amazingly, in a love relationship like that, you, you find out more about who you are in the very losing of your ego. And that, of course, should be put back into the relationship. Today, as any good woman will tell you, it's a lost art. <laughs> but nevertheless, that, that's what it's meant to be. So our rule is that whatever happens in the lower world teaches us about something in the higher world. Now, in the lower world, we laugh. What does that teach us about the higher world? And the answer is this. All theories of laughter agree that there's one universal feature that all human humor has, and that is what we call hippoch. Hippoch means from going from one situation to its absurd opposite, and that's what makes you laugh. The unexpected. When you put two things together which are absurdly unexpected that they should be together, or a process goes in one direction, and when you least expect it, it turns out to be going the other direction, that makes you laugh. That's a punchline. That's the punch of the hippoch. One can hear Purim in the offing, Vanafoich. Right? When a thing goes in one direction, when Haman makes plans to perpetrate a total genocide, killing every single Jew on one day, and it turns out that everything that it does leads to his destruction and a rebirth of Torah in the world in a way that is completely unprecedented, that's very funny. Now, it's not funny when you're going through it, but it's funny when you're watching from the sidelines. When the man, tall, conceited, self-inflated individual falls on the banana peel, he doesn't enjoy it one bit or see the humor at all. But when you're watching from the side, and that's also strange, why would we laugh at practical jokes like that that make people embarrassed? Very interesting. But even as you run to help him up, you can't hide a smile because of the ridiculous. And the answer is the juxtaposition of two opposites. And professional comedians will take you in one direction, and when you least expect it, flip it into the opposite, and the flip is what causes the humor. Here's a mother on the phone. She says, Oscar, my son, are you driving on the highway? He says, yes, mum. She says, Oscar, be very, very careful. The police say on the radio there's some crazy fellow on the highway going the wrong way. He says, Mum, there's hundreds of them. <laughs> you see, when you realize it wasn't going that way, it was going the other way, even when it's not funny at all, nevertheless, and that's Purim. Purim is the Vanahafoich, which is spiritual laughter. Now, admittedly not funny when you're going through it, but it's the flipping into an opposite that makes us laugh, and there's no spiritual lesson as important as that. Because the message is that all the tragedies we live through in history are all building an ecstasy, which will be spiritually, cosmically funny when history, God is sitting in heaven laughing because he sees that every attempt to thwart his plan in the world is actually bringing it about, right? That's very funny if you see it. So here's Pharaoh, Paroi, sitting on his throne, and he's issuing a decree to kill all the firstborn, all, all, the, all the babies. The Medrash says, not only Jewish babies, even Egyptian because his advisors couldn't tell him whether the Redeemer would be Jewish or Egyptian. So here's the almighty king, king of the empire of the time, sitting on his all-powerful throne, and he's making a decree to kill all the babies. And on his knee, he's raising the child <laughs> that will usurp his throne. That's very funny. <laughs> so you see, the concept of humor is, you know, Haman is building a gallows. The Medrash says he wanted to be so sure that it would fit Mordechai, he climbed up and put his neck in. And the angel Gabriel came down and said, so it's you. <laughs> so you see, the Torah's concept is that history is moving in one direction. But no matter how far it moves in that direction, no matter what you do, you know, the Gemara says in Sukkah that one day King Solomon saw the angel of death. So the Malachim the Ka'atziv, he was sad. So Shlomo went up to him and he said to him, what are you so sad about? So the angel of death said, you know, I've been sent to take the lives of two individuals. And I'm having trouble taking them. When Shlomo heard the names of those two individuals, he knew who they were. 
they were they were associates of his. He had them inst- using certain spiritual techniques. He had them transported instantaneously to the town of Luz, because in the town of Luz, the angel of death cannot penetrate. So no one could die in the town of Luz, because the angel of death cannot get in there. So in order to save their lives, he sent them to the town of Luz. As they arrived at the gates of Luz, they both died. The next day, Shlomo Melech saw the angel of death, who was Dekar Badich. He was happy. He went up to the angel of death, said, what are you so happy about? Angel of death said to him, you know, yesterday, those two individuals I was given instructions to take, my instructions were to take them at the gates of Luz, and I couldn't find a way of getting them there. (laughs) Now, you see, here's the wisest man of all time performing the greatest mitzvah, saving lives, and playing right into the hands of a destiny that's waiting to happen. And I think he gets the credit for the mitzvah of saving life. What, what was he supposed to do? You make your plans, you do your free will, you do what, and what happens is you're playing into the hands of a destiny. Not only that, the angel of death was playing games with him. He knew exactly how to get them to the gates of Luz, just in, appear in front of King Solomon looking sad. That is the humor of, so the tragedies of life, right, are in fact building of an ecstasy, and that is very humorous. The example that comes to mind here, and there are so many, is you have Isaac, Yitzchak. Yitzchak means he will laugh. It's a very bizarre name for a Jewish child. The first Jewish child born in history is Yitzchak. And he is named laughter. Why? Because his birth's impossible. His father's too old, his mother's too old, she has no womb, says the Talmud. So the angels will appear and tell them you'll have a child. Of course they laughed. That's the appropriate result. That's the appropriate response to an absurdity of an inversion of an impossibility and some child. But the story gets funnier. When Yitzchak's old enough to marry, he's a young man, 36, 37 years old, God says to him, Abraham, I'd like you to kill him. You see, this is a real comedy. (laughs) I'd like you to kill him. Talk about bizarre. So what happens? Abraham takes Yitzchak and he puts him on the altar and takes a knife and God says, kill him. And Abraham looks up and he says, Hashem, Never mind me. You, there's no way you could want this. Never mind me. You know, they teach the children it was very difficult emotionally and so forth. It wasn't difficult emotionally. He was feeling the joy of performing a mitzvah at that time. But the problem was, the Talmud says, this was an order that he was given by God who never intended it. The language in the Talmud is a quote of the verse in Tehillim, I never commanded this, I never ordered it, and it never occurred to me, God says. Which means this killing of his child was something there's no way I wanted. So as the beloved knows the heart of the beloved, Avram knew that there's no way that Hashem would want this. So he takes the knife and about to kill his son, and God says, kill him. And looks up and he says, Hashem, there's no way you could want this. And God says, right, I don't want it. Now kill him anyway. You're talking about a complete impossibility. What does the Torah say? Yitzchak survived. What does the Zohar say? He died. Well, did he live or die? Both. Is that possible? No, but it happened. We call it Chiyas Amazim. And here's the real irony. Yitzchak goes through a death process, and the Medrash says his ashes remained on the altar, and he walks off to get married, and he becomes an indestructible human being. He becomes the father of a nation that they've spent 4,000 years trying to kill us, and we're the only ones who are still here. That's very funny. <laughs> and therefore, Yitzchak means he shall laugh. Of course, we're talking about the last laugh. The Tikkun Zohar says that Yitzchak spells Ketzchai. Yitzchak, Ketzchai, death in life, the next world in this world. Yitzchak becomes a man who walks in this world with his feet on the ground and his head in another world. He, he becomes a human being who's mortal and yet indestructible. That's very funny. And for the last 4,000 years, they've been trying to kill us in a genocidal fashion. Purim was the highlight. <laughs> we still have. 
And therefore we are called, we are called the people of the last laugh. Let me finish by giving you the most extreme example. This will sound a little bizarre, but a uh, little patience will, will show its meaning. The funniest event of all is death. Because death looks to us like a total, incontrovertible destruction and decomposition. And yet, on the other side of that divide is where cosmic life begins. Of course, it's not funny when you're going through it. And it's not funny when you look at it from here. But when you realize what it means, and that's why we say that a woman of spiritual greatness can laugh of the day of death. Because a woman has been through that in her flesh. She's been through a birth process which looks like two people are dying. Now, I don't want to put any of our female listeners off. I'm sure they'll enjoy childbirth very much. But <laughs> nevertheless, it looks like an experience in which she's dying. And as any doctor will tell you, the baby goes through a process which is utterly impossible. A child in the womb is living underwater. He has holes in his heart, blood flowing in the wrong direction. It's a major blood vessel taking all the blood away from the lungs. He has no lungs. They're little scrunched up bits of tissue. He's got blood vessels coming out through his umbilicus. He's got the wrong sort of blood. <laughs> he's got 20 reasons that keep him alive that guarantee death within two minutes when he's born. And you, Rabbi Mena, you have 20 conditions in your that keep you alive that if you've killed the fetus, if you, you're talking about a life and death opposite to your way. There's no way this could, child could survive. He's going to be born into a world where he will die instantly. If you look in the third section of the Gesher Achaim, he talks about two twins in the womb, enjoying this idyllic experience. Who could give me like those months that I spent in my mother's womb? Unbelievable existence. And then the tremors begin and one child is thrust out. The twin who remains behind mourns for a child who must have died. Little does he know that where life begins. He says, when you stand, lay alone at a graveside. This is what you should feel. You should feel the tragedy. But on the other hand, you should know that out of your range of vision is another life beginning. So here's this baby about to be born. There's no way he can survive. I've delivered dozens of babies. And I can tell you, as you deliver that little baby, you hold him in your hands. He goes blue. Then he goes purple. He makes these terrible gasping movements. He's bleeding furiously through the umbilical vessels. His heart's... There's no way he can survive. And suddenly, as you hold him in your hands, the cord clamps down like a cable of steel and stops the bleeding. At exactly the same moment, the holes in the heart close and the blood rushes direction. At the same moment, the vessel from the lungs clamps down, the blood hits the lungs. At the same moment, he takes his first breath. And about three minutes later, it's all reversed and he's doing fine. That must have taken a good few orangutans during evolution <laughs> to get right by accident. You yeah. know, A lot of chimpanzees must have not made it. That is very, very funny. Here's a woman going through an experience of pain. And now it turns out that every pain was the reason for life being born in the world. And the child goes through an inversion which looks like guaranteed death, and that turns out to be life. That's very funny. But Tishak, a woman, and we, we sing that on Friday night, because Friday night represents the transition from the mundane week into the elevated pre-Messianic premonition of Shabbos. And that's why we call the final Messianic advent Chevle Mashiach. When the Mashiach comes, it will look like we are totally hopeless. Midrashim say all the proofs will be against us. It will look like God has accepted them and rejected us. Just like in labor. And we call it that Talmud says, it will be so fearsome, let it come, but let me not see it. And that is the, that is the concept. We say, if you prepared spiritually, if a woman knows what labor is, and she knows what these pains are leading to, and she's broad-minded and, and, and spiritual enough, she can have the concept. doesn't mean it's pleasant while you're going through it, of course. And that is Jewish history. You know, the brothers stand in front of Joseph. They don't know he's their brother. They feel this torment of this bizarre Egyptian 
and he's tormenting them. And it's been years since they've seen any spiritual light. 22 years. Can you imagine? And finally, after tormenting them time and again in a bizarre fashion, which is the story of our lives, a tragedy becomes crisis. And finally, Joseph says to them, you can all go back home. Just leave your brother Benjamin. And at that moment, there was absolutely no future left. The Sosemus puts it like this. He says, Judah, Yehuda, in front of those brothers, there were no options. Their father had lost prophecy for over 20 years. They were aware of their guilt for having sold their brother. They knew they were guilty. But who this weird Egyptian was who was tormenting, they had no idea. And at that point, when he said, you can all go, just leave Binyamin, there were only two options. One was go home and leave him and kill their father. As soon as they appeared, appeared in the distance without Benjamin with them, he would have died of grief, Yaakov. Or kill everyone. Wipe out all of Egyptian society. Kill everybody. Become mass murderers. There were no other options. And that moment of utter hopelessness after years of torment, one has to understand what they went through. Judas steps forward and he says to his unknown brother, he says, I have no idea what this means, but I know one thing. I promised my father I'd bring him home. At that moment, fixing the problem that they had done all those years before, which is what Joseph wants. I promised my father I'd bring him home, and therefore, take me and let him go. And in that moment of total abject self-sacrifice, in a context of total hopelessness, the brothers hear the words, Ani Yosef. That is very funny. You, the source of the problem, not the cavalry riding in from left stage. You! The source of the problem. And in that instant, they suddenly realize that every instant of torment has been the reason for their rehabilitation and for their redemption. Right? Of course, when you're going through it, it's not funny. They were paralyzed. They couldn't move. The major says he had to kiss them and speak to them in Hebrew, and they, they couldn't move. When you're going through it, it's not funny. But that is what we call the last laugh. So would you say that the Jewish humor today as we know it and the great rabbis that have expressed their humor is almost to take themselves out of the grief and suffering that has been uh, throughout our history and almost looking at the future, the grand plan in order to laugh at today, to make light of the tragedy in the big picture? I think that's a very perceptive insight. I think what our great rabbis are doing and indeed Jews through the ages who've laughed with what we call gallows humor. Indeed, is about tishak We are in the depths of our sadness and our tragedy. We are using humor, which is a beginning of a perception of a light that is dawning, yet within the darkness. I'll tell you a practical output and leave you with one final story. The practical message is this. You know, many, many people say, well, there's talk about laughter. You're theoretical and abstract. Now, give me a practical message. Here's a practical message. The world today is upside down. We see bloodshed and torment and untold, unnecessary misery in a world of values which are totally cruel and, and immoral. The world is upside down today. When the Mashiach comes and the world is redeemed, it will be set to rights. The practical message, Rabbi Mena, is for a Jew today, live upside down. Walk around on your head. Live a life that is completely contrary to all the values of the world around you. Live a life of morality and ethics and value in a world that is celebrating and making entertainment out of brutality and immorality. Walk around on your head. Because when the world is turned around, you'll be the right way up. And just let me leave you with a story. We always go against the current, right? Jews, you know, Oscar driving on the highway, he's going the right way. right? Because we do not go the way the rest of the world. <laughs> we stand exactly opposed to them. And here's the story which I offer as a summing up of that idea. 
is a fellow who his name's not important, but uh, the butt of all jokes in South Africa. Every country probably has one. <laughs> He's driving with his friend, and they come to a red light, and his friend speeds right through the red light. He says to him, what are you doing? It's dangerous. His friend says, no, don't worry. My brother always does. Come to the next red light, and the fellow goes right through the red light. But are you going to get us killed? Don't worry. My brother always does. Next red light, totally straight through the red light. But how can you drive so dangerously? Don't worry. My brother always does. Next light's green, and the fellow screeches to a halt. <laughs> said, what are you doing now? He says, no, but in case my brother's coming through. <laughs> very good. And that's is always a different career, just in case. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And just tell our listeners that all the comments, feedback, reviews, would be happy to receive them at podcast at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Tats. My pleasure. And we'll see you next week, Mr. Jim. Thank you. <laughs>